Welcome back to Franklin Covey's On Leadership Series. My name is Scott Miller, and I serve as your host and interviewer each week. We do our best each episode to curate some great thought leadership for you to help you build a winning culture, your own leadership skills, or generally your influence in your career as well. Today, we have the privilege of interviewing Adam Davidson, the co-founder of NPR's Planet Money podcast, a Peabody award-winning journalist and the author of the new book, The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. Adam, welcome to On Leadership. It's so great to be here. Thank you, Scott. Adam, great to have you. I mean, this is a thick book. It was a captivating read, as you can see from the set behind me. I've got a few reps in, not just writing, but a lot of reps (laughs) in reading. We're coming up on our 100th episode with On Leadership. We carefully curate our guests to provide broad uh, value and introspection to our listeners and our viewers. Could not be more honored to talk to you today about all of your research and your own passion around the passion economy. Really appreciate you joining us. Uh, a lot of accolades. I mean, you've, you've uh, written articles for The New Yorker. You're an award-winning journalist. You're an entrepreneur. You are a podcast founder, and now you are the author of this new captivating book that we'll get into. For those final few people on earth that don't know who you are, would you take a couple of moments and check your humility and listen, uh, <laughs> share with our listeners and viewers a little bit about your journey and how you came to be the author of this new phenomenal book? Sure. No, I'm thrilled to do that, and thanks for the comment. Honestly, I'm just looking at your hair and my bald head, so that. <laughs> The humility hey man, run with your in. strengths, right? Run with your strengths. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, um, yes, I was a journalist. I still am a journalist um, for many, many years. And much of my work over the last 15, 20 years has been, frankly, really depressing. I um, covered the war in Iraq um, and spent a lot of time in the Middle East, which is a region, obviously, that has struggled economically as well as politically and, and militarily. Um, I came back to the U.S. Um, I covered for a while almost every crisis you can think of, um, the tsunami in Indonesia, the earthquake in Haiti, um, many other crises. I also was very involved through Planet Money and covering the financial crisis and covering lots of topics that were depressing. The uh, stagnation of wages for many people, um, the trying to probe political in, uh, and economic inequality, et cetera. And so much of my day job was figuring out all the bad things in the economy. And at first sort of accidentally, I kept noticing people who just weren't living the life that all of that kind of reporting tells you everyone's living. Uh, These were people who were not being devastated by trade with China. They were not finding their careers over and their lives miserable. They were actually thriving in really wonderful ways um, and in new ways, in my view. And at first, it was sort of a just a curiosity. Who are these people? What are they doing? Over time, though, I worked with a team of economists and business professors at Harvard and MIT to really figure out what is going on here? Who This really started to feel like, and I think now I've established our, a real force in our economy now, a force that I think and hope will grow. And that's where the book came out. You know, I call it the passion economy to describe this phenomenon I kept witnessing. Adam, before we dive into your research and insights, which are, are profound in the book, The Passion Economy, 
everyone has heard of Planet Money Podcast. Some of your celebrity, of course, mm -hmm. comes from the, uh, the founding of that. For those final people who may not be subscribing yet, talk about the genesis of Planet Money Podcast, why it's become so popular and well-subscribed to, and where can people find it? Sure. Um, so I came to an interest in business and economics very late. I grew up, my dad's an actor, my mom has run various dance companies. I grew up in a world of artists. And as I like to say, artists are very open about almost any topic. They love exploring the world and talking to children about all sorts of interesting things. And as a kid, I felt very excited to talk to my parents and their friends. But there was this one topic artists hate and never want to talk about. And it's the topic of business and money. And so, of course, how do you rebel when you grow up with a bunch of artists? You rebel by becoming a finance reporter. But I felt that a lot, not all, but a lot of business coverage is frankly pretty dull and pretty hard to understand if you don't already know. You know, so if someone's reporting on what the Federal Reserve did, what about all the people who don't really know what the Federal Reserve is and why they should care? And so it was really out of frustration, both as a news consumer and as a business reporter, that I just thought I would love to create stories that really capture the visceral drama of business, because obviously all of our lives are so thoroughly influenced by business. I mean, obviously, if we're entrepreneurs or business people, but it, it, whoever we are, um, how we make money, who makes money, uh, how we're likely to make money in the future, how we can think about our children's future, how their material conditions will be. It's a very rich and, and powerful area. And it's also just fascinating. And so the idea of Planet Money was to not dumb things down, not make them simplistic, but capture the real power of business and economics in a storytelling, richly told way. And it's been a really wonderful success. I ran it for its first five years. It started in 2008 and it's just gone on from success to success. So um, anywhere you get podcasts, if you just search Planet Money, um, often, I mean, generally it's in the top 10, top 20 lists right. on every podcast app. It's yeah. really one of the things I'm proudest of in my life, second to my child, that I was able to create something that has outlived me. So you really have two children, because I think Planet Money Podcast yeah. <laughs> is such a great yeah. gift to everybody. So let's talk a bit about the passion economy in the book. I'm going to critique your book a little bit because we're friends, <laughs> and I can do that, and you're a gracious yeah. guy. You know, as I mentioned, uh, I've read a few books in my day, and uh, yeah. uh, I generally, because I'm an efficient person, which isn't necessarily uh, a strength, I usually skip over the introductions in books because they're often self-serving, and, and I get the purpose of them. But I have to tell you, uh, after thousands of leadership, thousands of leadership books, biographies, political histories, research books I've read, your introduction is the finest introduction I've ever read in a book because wow. it is invaluable to setting up the rest of the book. And as I suffered through it, suffered only because I don't usually read intros, I realized <laughs> this is so well-crafted. I couldn't imagine reading your book without having read the introduction. And I mean that to be a compliment, not a criticism. In fact, you've maybe challenged my conventional thinking on maybe I should go back and be a little less impulsive on breezing through introductions. You spend a lot of time talking about this juxtaposition between your father and your grandfather, which in essence is the premise of the whole book, The Passion Economy. Will you take 
our listeners and viewers on that journey because we all will be able to relate to how that impacted your writing. Yeah, absolutely. And thank you so much. I really struggled with the introduction and I completely agree with you that introductions often feel like a bunch of, you know, clearing your throat before the actual book begins. And the introductions I kept writing felt that way. And my wife, Jen, kept saying, just write about your dad and your grandfather. It's the whole story. And of course, um, like a dumb husband, I kept saying, eh, no, nah, that's not a great idea. And then eventually I realized, oh, yes, that is the absolute great idea. So um, because much of what I'm saying in this book is that we are living in a new economy. And I had to explain what I mean by that by explaining the old economy. But you don't want to start a book with a big history lesson um, it, unless it can be really grounded in your own personal experience. So um, I tell the story of my grandfather, Stanley Jack Davidson Sr., who um, I say and really feel was the embodiment of the 20th century American man. He was um, tall, big shoulders, strong guy, full head of hair, by the way. <laughs> well, in, he died at 99 with a full head of hair. Um, and he was a guy born in 1917 um, to a very poor family. Uh, his father died when he was young. Um, he was a clearly bright and ambitious young man, but was 18 in the middle of the depression with a wife, a baby on the way, and pretty soon several more babies. And he did what a man of that era did. He got a job. And it wasn't a job that satisfied his passion or was some expression of his soul. It was a job because getting a job was what you did. And his wife, my grandmother's father, got him a job at a factory that made the machines that make ball bearings, uh, a machine tool plant. And he went to work there and he worked two shifts a day for, he worked at that company 50 plus years. And, um, and he felt that the very idea of wondering what is in his heart, what is in his soul was irrelevant to business. He happened to be a really good dancer. He loved tennis, but those were things you did on the weekend when you were resting. Those were not fundamental um, parts of being a man and, and having a job. Um, I remember asking my dad, what did, you, what did you know about what your dad did for a living? And he said, I had no idea. He went to work and then he came back. I had no idea, but I knew it was awful because he just seemed so unhappy. And then Stanley Jack Davidson Sr. had my dad, Stanley Jack Davidson Jr. And it was a bad match from the beginning. My dad's a very lively, passionate, funny guy who from a very young age wanted to explore himself, wanted to be creative and um, didn't really accept this idea that he was gonna just have a job and do that job. Um, he did, um, my dad has a long, interesting history, but he got kicked out of high school at 16, got, to, got a job in a shoe factory um, putting the heels on shoes. And he just said, forget this. I'm not doing that thing my dad did and that the society tells me to do. I'm not just taking a job that I hate. And it took a little while, but my dad found acting and decided he was going to be an actor. And to his father, I mean, it's like saying, I'm going to be a unicorn trainer or I'm going to you know, become a butterfly. It's an utterly, what are you talking about? You're going to be an actor. We don't know any actors. Actors don't make money. You want to be a father. You want to be a husband. You have to get a job. And 
the truth is my dad did recognize that becoming an artist, um, pursuing his passion as opposed to just doing a job, meant he was going to have a life of financial uncertainty. And indeed he did. I grew up um, in New York City and we, you know, we I, don't, I wouldn't call us poor, but financial insecurity was all around us. The average actor who's not some big movie star does not make much money and does not make steady money. And it created a lot of anxiety. Yet my dad was very proud of it and I'm very proud of him for living a life so grounded in his passion. But what and I feel like I grew up believing the stories of Stanley Sr. and Stanley Jr. Although I should say my dad always goes by Jack. He hates it when people call him Stanley. So he's Jack Davidson. And if you Google him, usually people say, oh, I've seen him in a movie or a TV show. He's not famous or anything, but he's had a decent career. Um, and I grew up believing that story that basically when I left college at 21, I had a choice. I could make money and be miserable or I could follow my passion and be broke. And really what this book at core is, is an argument that you don't have to accept that trade-off anymore. I do think it was true for them. I think it was true for most people in the 20th century, but a whole bunch of things have changed that mean this economy now is, it's not only is it not a trade-off that you can live your passion and make a living, but I would argue you have to that doing what my grandfather did, just having a job and doing a job is no longer sufficient. That turns you into a reproducible commodity that's not gonna be a big success um, in the long term. Adam, I think if there were two books I would advise anybody read who's looking to grow their career and explore their talents, it would be David Epstein's book, Range, who I interviewed a few weeks ago, combined with your book, because his premise around being a generalist or a specialist in your premise, you're the value prop of this book, which is really exploring the meaningful marriage between passion and business is gonna give birth to a tremendous amount of uh, entrepreneurial spirit and such. Talk a bit about how you struggled with making this book practical, but also aspirational, because you are an entrepreneur. The book is extremely well-researched, but you've, you've hit a nerve in me which is how do people that work in large corporations balance their own passion? Like you said, you know, be rich and be miserable or be you know, happy and broke. Those weren't your exact words, but yeah, it's but no longer an if that, then this kind of scenario. What advice would you give people on kind of the balance between exploring their passion and also earning a living? Yes, and, and so many of the stories in the book are about entrepreneurs, but I think the principles apply, if anything, more to people who work in a large company. Um, I find it's fun to write about entrepreneurs. They make for good stories because they're sort of a natural hero journey. Typically, they, you know, have faced and overcome obstacles. There's, you know, all the classic things you want in a good story. Um, and and so I I tell a lot of entrepreneurial stories and I very much hope this is a book that entrepreneurs find valuable. I certainly very much hope that. But if, if, if there was one thing I would do differently if I were to rewrite it, it's to focus also more on people who work in a large corporate context because I do think the core lessons are the same. And basically I'd put it this way. If you think of the economy for most of the 20th century, so you think of the um, I picture the TV show Mad Men, or uh, you just picture, say, Procter and Gamble or IBM, circa 1963 or something. You know, you picture a big floor with 
maybe there's one or two people whose job is to have big ideas, to come up with some creative something. And then there's dozens or hundreds of people who support that process. They are secretaries and draftspeople and bookkeepers and all the job functions that we now do with our phones and with a fairly inexpensive laptop. And what I eventually realized is the negative stories I was telling and the positive stories I was telling were the same story. So when I talked about covering the financial crisis, covering anxiety in the economy, a lot of that is about the same thing, that we had an economy that was fairly stable, that provided a lot of growth for a lot of people. And then that economy was ripped apart by um, computer technology, by the internet, by artificial intelligence, by robotics, and by global trade. And that has hurt a lot of people who are thriving in the old system, but it also has brought enormous opportunity for lots of people as well. And in my view, a lot of business journalists spend maybe a little more time on the negative than the positive, and that, that was why this book was a correction. But what I would say is, if you think of the core business economic goals of the 20th century, it was to make the same stuff faster and faster, cheaper and cheaper, and spread it to more and more people. And in that context, you really do need a lot of worker bees. You need a lot of people following the way we do things at this company. And you don't want somebody on the ivory soap line or the Ford production line to be expressing their individual passion through how they make ivory soap. Um, and, and so it was appropriate for people to do the things that people did in the 20th century. To, to You might have passions, you might have a weird personality, you might have an unlikely combination of interests, but when you went to work, you were a bookkeeper or you were a line worker or you were a marketing executive and you filled that function. And the last thing you wanted to do is tell your boss, hey, I have this new special unique way to do, be me. But now I think more and more, even the large companies recognize that if someone is doing a task that can that's somewhat repetitive, that can be formalized, let's get a computer to do it. Let's get somebody in a lower wage country to do it. We don't need to be paying American salaries or European salaries to those people. And increasingly even Chinese salaries and other countries that are rising um, where wages are rising. So you need to find that thing that you do add that unique value you add to the company. And that's not saying break all the rules and don't show up on time. And obviously there's basic rules to functioning in a large organization. But if you don't have a way of articulating and identifying what you uniquely bring, your particular passions, then you're probably not gonna have a long and successful career, I would think. Adam, I think it's a must-read book for leaders in organizations like myself, with my own career journey, but also for entrepreneurs. In fact, I found the, the bridge to be very quite simple and natural from a lot of your entrepreneurial stories into my own career. I wouldn't rewrite that part of it, but you do what you like. I, I did love the part about the eight rules for this kind of passion economy, and one of them is don't do things that you um, don't do things that you can't scale. It was kind of counterintuitive, right? Because we hear about scale and scope and all of that. Talk, talk to that idea of avoiding things you can't scale. Yes, avoiding things you that avoiding, avoiding uh, things that can't scale, right? Yeah. So there is, and, and you mentioned. Um, the idea of sort of the, the, the smallest viable market. I mean, the, I'd say a sweet spot 
both for the entrepreneurs I write about, but also for people pursuing their own career is what is some product or service or family of products and services that's big enough to support a decent life, a decent career, a decent business, um, but small enough that someone isn't going to just swoop in and eat it up and take it away from you. And I think that that might seem like it's you know, passing through the eye of a needle. I'm talking about some really narrow thing. But actually what I've learned is it is a huge, huge area that there is a massive gulf between um, something so small that you're never going to make a living at it. So, you know, someone who does a small crafty thing and maybe goes to craft fairs on the weekends and might make some pocket change, but isn't really building a business all the way to, you know, something that Apple or, you know, some large corporation cares about or that some factory in China is going to pay attention and say, hey, we're going to copy that product and make our own version. And what I found is in every industry I look at and not just creative industries, but, you know, a brush manufacturer, uh, marketing people, advertisers, um, chocolate bar makers, any industry I look at, there's this huge space where you can make a, say, 10 to $100 million a year business, which is, for most of us, that'd be fabulous. You're, you're making a decent living as, as the owner of that, and you're building real asset value that could be life-transforming. That's a huge and wonderful space, but you're nowhere near big enough that some massive player is going to swoop in and take your business away. Now, to be in that sweet space, though, you, you have to be doing things that are not scalable, that that they're not, that you're adding a unique value. So you are choosing kind of a ceiling. You are saying, I'm not going to make the thing that will spread all over the world. So if I could use a quick example of the chocolate bar, because I I love that story that I tell in my book, but when um, Forrest and Frank Mars, the father and son who created Uh, the Snickers bar, when they were working together in the 1920s, um, they eventually fell apart and hated each other. It's a very sad story. But when they were working together, they really engineered the Snickers bar to be scalable. They created an industrial product that happened to taste really good. Um, The very fact that it has this hard center and a soft chocolate outside was not because of flavor and taste and mouthfeel. It was because it's just cheaper and faster to have a hard center that goes through a chocolate enrobing process mm-hmm. than to have a hard chocolate outside. But generally, people prefer a hard chocolate outside. Um, so they did that because they wanted to be able to make as many Snickers bars as possible, get them all over the world, and have people buy them at a cheap enough price that people will just get addicted to Snickers bars. Now, I tell the story of Ocho Candy, which makes indeed a hard-shelled chocolate bar um, that has a soft, gooey inside. I love them. They're delicious. I consider them way better than Snickers, although Snickers are pretty delicious too, I will admit. And they have a ceiling because it's just fussier. It's more expensive. You're not going to be able to make millions and millions and millions of these things for pennies a pop. It's just a fussier process. You have to melt chocolate, cool chocolate, melt it again, cool it again. It's a, it, it takes much longer. and But they've been able to find this market that is, Snickers will never pay attention to it because it's too small, but it's really big. They're going to, these owners are going to make millions of dollars. They're going to do very well for themselves. And that's 
what I think of as you want to be in a space, it can scale a bit, you know, I'm not suggesting everyone open a tiny shop and just sell to your neighbors, um, but not that kind of global scale that we think of, because that's just going to be swallowed away. It's a great insight. Uh, what I love about your book is you tell some great stories. Like all books in your space, you have a lot of great stories. Like almost no books that I've ever read in this space, you go into deep detail, like 10, 15 pages on a half dozen stories. And in the beginning, I was a little frustrated about that until I found myself reading them all and translating them into my own life and my own business and my role here at Franklin Covey. I'd like to spend the bulk of the rest of our time having you talk about Megan and the wine business and take the next eight, 10 minutes and kind of walk us through that story because it's instructive of how the whole book reads. I encourage everyone to pick up a copy because there's a half dozen stories that you'll find to be very similar to that. But uh, walk us through Megan, the wine marketing business, and what some of the insights our listeners and viewers should take from that. Yeah, that's great. And I love that you picked Megan because I love her story. So Megan is uh, a force of nature, um, tall, attractive, blonde woman who runs a marketing agency in Northern California. But it took her a long time to, and a bunch of mistakes to figure out how to monetize her passion and how to identify and articulate her passion. And I think you're exactly right. It's a lesson we all can learn so much from. Um, Megan grew up in Sonoma County. Um, she didn't work, her parents weren't in the wine business, but her dad ran uh, a bunch of regional uh, supermarkets. So she grew up in the food business. And something I learned, I mean, I think of wine as, frankly, sometimes I like wine, but I think of it as a bit snobby and, you know, pretentious people, but Megan taught me that, and I, she took me around Sonoma County, that wine is actually made by farmers. It's an agricultural product. I guess I knew that, but I didn't think about it. And there's this real connection to the earth, to the ground, um, that's very different from the kind of, I don't know, pretentious, you know, oh, I like this French wine or whatever. Although I do like French wine. I don't mean to put that down. I'm just saying there's a real earthiness and a real tactile reality to wine that Megan knows. So Megan grew up. She was really interested in marketing. She knew she was fascinated by wine. Um, she eventually opened her own um, ad agent, uh, marketing agency, the Honey Agency. And she did what every creative entrepreneur does what every entrepreneur does. She took every client who knocked. And if a client wanted something, she just wanted to close that sale and get that business. She happened to launch her business right in the middle of the financial crisis, which was a bit terrifying. And sometimes she thinks, what was I thinking? And so she was particularly desperate for every piece of business. And so she was doing you know, doing logos for furniture stores and uh, posters for hospitals and everything that she could do um, in the greater Sacramento, Sacramento, California area, she would do. And, um, and she got lots of business. She, you know, it happens to be a 2008, a lot of larger marketing ad agencies were laying people off. They were reducing capacity. And so it actually was a pretty good time for these small, more nimble uh, um, advertising and marketing agencies. And so she had a ton of work. She hired a lot of staff, and um, but she wasn't making profit. She wasn't able to pay herself. She wasn't able to even breathe. It was 
80, 90 hour work days. She had a baby in the middle of all this and she was felt like she was barely able to be a mother. And she was really scared and confused and didn't understand how can I have so much business and be making so little money that I actually take home? What can I do? And then like so many people, her solution was let me get more business and more business and more business. So she had an accountant at the time who she would ask, you know, you're my money person. Can you give me guidance on how to run the business more successfully? And her accountant was a standard accountant, would say, oh, here's how much you owe for your taxes or whatever, had no insight, no, no real value to have. And Megan began Googling um, creative accountants, accountants, advisors. She just had this idea. There must be someone out there who can give me guidance. And she stumbled upon this guy, Jason Blummer, who is the subject of another chapter in my book, who um, is an accountant who hated being an accountant and eventually learned that he hated doing taxes. He hated doing payroll and audits, but he loved guiding creative entrepreneurs through their business. And so he created a business where he is just that. He's a guide for people like Megan. And so uh, he flew out, met with Megan and her team, and it just became obvious to him that, that she was making a bunch of mistakes that I think are so common. They're common in businesses. They're common among people in their own careers. He was, uh, so what was Megan doing right? She was genuinely passionate and was genuinely creating a quality product. But what was she doing wrong? Well, first of all, by saying yes to everything, she was allowing prospective clients to define her business and define what they would spend their time doing. Um, she tells the story of one person who ran a furniture store and decided he wanted a new logo. And she would sit with this guy and say, um, and, and talk with him. And she knew in her head, he doesn't need a new logo. He needs to figure out what his business is he had both a retail outlet and a wholesale uh, business and he had a very specific idea about his place in the market but he wasn't articulating that place to his potential customers and she thought he doesn't need me to do a logo he needs somebody to just kind of slap him around a little and say what are you who are you what is your value proposition and then how do we communicate that to other people but of course, Megan needed that herself and she just wanted the work, so she said yes. And so what Jason helped Megan see is the key question or a major question any entrepreneur, but especially in the creative services field needs to ask is, who is my customer? And if you're saying it's everybody who calls, then you are just making a non-decision. You're ceding control of your core strategy. So he worked with Megan to understand what does she truly feel passionate about? What does she, what's, what can she do that others can't? And that brought her to wine. She knows wine in a way nobody else does. And she understands both how wine is made and who makes it. And she understands how wine is consumed and marketed and sold. And she really knows that deep in her guts. And also from her dad as a supermarket person, she has a good sense of retail and the various different types of retail. Why wine being sold in a supermarket aisle is different from wine being sold in a small wine shop and how that whole process of communication happens. So that was a first pass, realizing my passion is in this product category and it's not in furniture or hospitals or these other areas. 
But then there's a, a second passion that she didn't even know she had, and Jason really helped her see, which is it's it's the thing in the back of her head she was thinking when she was frustrated with her clients, like that furniture guy. She has a passion not just for doing the creative work, creating the logo, coming up with, you know, directing the photo session with the products or coming up with the perfect display at a retail shop. She really loves the strategy piece. Who is our customer? How do we define our customer? Where are they? How are they? How do we communicate with them? And that brings you directly to pricing. And if there's one lesson I would scream at every entrepreneur, it's that we have a pricing crisis in America and around the world. And as a general rule, we're both pricing way too low and we're pricing incorrectly. That pricing based on sort of a cost plus model, like, okay, we're going to do an hourly rate and we're just going to keep the hourly rate a little bit higher than what we're paying our workers. Or it costs $12 to make this hammer, so we're going to sell it for $24. The cost plus is the wrong way to price. You price based on the value you are providing to the end user, not the cost of coming up with that value. And when you think of a creative professional like Megan, there might be a ton of value that she brings in the first couple interactions where she's able to ask those sharp questions, hone a customer's ability to understand what it is they're trying to accomplish that they themselves can't even articulate. Those first, say, 10 hours might be worth $300,000. Who knows? And then there's a whole bunch of work that has to be done. We've got to translate that into logos and business cards and you know, posters and maybe online ads or whatever, that stuff is probably not worth the same amount. But creating a package that actually captures that value and properly values that strategy engagement piece allows you to spend more time on the stuff that's truly valuable. Because previously, that was something either Megan wasn't even sharing with the clients for insights, or she was just kind of tossing it in for free. So, she did all the things that you know I think of now as best practices. She defined a clear niche or niche. I know in America, in New York, I feel like we say niche, but other places in America they say niche. She defined a clear niche, and she figured out who her audience is, and she priced appropriately. And then here's the hardest part of all for entrepreneurs and small business people. She was willing to let them say no, and she was willing to say no. Mm -hmm. So once you start pricing based on value, you very quickly learn that some of your customers don't recognize your value. They don't think that insight is worth $300,000. They want to pay what the next advertising agency charges, you know, 50 bucks an hour or whatever it is. And that's actually good. When your potential customers say no, or you, before you that even happens, say, look, I'm not going to pitch on this job. I don't think we're a match. That is how you take control of your destiny. You can take control of your business. And what Megan shows, and this book is filled with examples, and I've met dozens and hundreds of other people who prove this out as well, who aren't in the book, is that when you do those steps and you do them intelligently, you get to where Megan is now, which is she has far fewer customers but she's providing way more value to those customers. She's charging appropriately. And that means she's making a decent living. She's not gouging her customers. She's, she's charging them an appropriate amount. 
but she's not running around as as Jason used to tell her. You're a you're just a crazy train, and you make all your employees jump on the crazy train. And so, what her life now? It's not just that she makes more money; it's that she doesn't work as many hours, but she's spending far more of her working hours doing a the things she genuinely loves, b the things she can do that others are not going to be able to do as well, and then see the things that are truly adding value to her customer. And that, I think, really is available to, I think, pretty much every business person, every entrepreneur. And I'll say it again to those of us as employees. As an employee, it might mean that you're not working at the right company, that you're going to have to find another company or another division in your company to have a boss who recognizes your value. Um, I'm not saying everyone everywhere is going to suddenly recognize, yes, you should be paid twice as much. But going through that process, you should be able to find that place once you articulate and and identify your unique value where you're properly valued. Adam, I mean this sincerely. This chapter alone is worth buying the book. I'm actually going to take one of the copies up to our company president because what you didn't share in the last 10 minutes was the other side of the whole Megan story, which was the work she was doing with this boutique winemaker and all the lessons that are taken from the wine business struggling with how they produce a certain high level of wine and how deliberate and patient and contemplative this vineyard is willing to be to grow their customer base, grow their brand for wine that they might choose to curate, invent, and sell six, eight, ten years from now. I found that whole story as part of the Megan chapter to be absolutely um, just captivating. In fact, I'm going to have, I'm going to probably rip it out, those pages out and go (laughs) hand it to the president because it has so much resonance with what our own firm, a global public firm is going through. I want to talk about one more story and that is this idea of sweet green, which I'd never heard before. This small kind of fast food restaurant, there's not one in Utah and I travel a lot, had not heard about it, but you talk a lot about the economics of turnover and how important it is for every organization to really think about the connection between passion and training and leadership and growth. In fact, you share this company called Sweetgreen, relatively small uh, a company, 4,000 employee, uh, and about half of the employees in fast food chains leave every year because these jobs that pay minimum wage are easy to pick up and get. And you do the economics that um, Sweetgreen has, at the time of printing, about $60 million of revenue every year with a roughly a $6 million profit margin and that each employee that leaves costs the company about $2,000. And you do the math quite simply to say that, you know, every three months of extended tenure for even a frontline worker is worth about one percentage point in profit for the company. Will you take the remaining few minutes and talk about the lessons that every leader listening and watching can share from your research at this company? Yeah, absolutely. And for me, this was the big surprise because it's easy for me to picture how people with a college degree and a lot of ambition and maybe, you know, the people in my book are not rich, but maybe have enough little capital that they could try something. You know, it's easy for me to see how those people can live in a passion economy. But what about the minimum wage fast food worker with minimal education, minimal career prospects? And that's why Sweet Green I found so inspiring. And what I'll say, and I'm sure you'll agree, like leadership is, you know, it's a personal value. You wanna be a good leader to your team for reasons that have nothing to do with the bottom line. But what Sweet Green taught me is that even if you're just 
profit focused. You could care less about your employees. You could care less about their happiness or their passion. It still makes a lot of sense to pay a lot of attention to how do I manifest the individual passions of my employees. And then the other thing that Sweetgreen shows us is that this can be done at scale. It can be done at fast food chain size, um, Walmart size, Costco size. It doesn't just have to be, you know, world is just a bunch of small boutique shops that, that live their passion. Although I love small boutique shops, I should make it clear. So, um, so here's what Sweet Green realized that, and I did not fully understand this. There's this whole world of minimum wage fast food workers. And they know because they've been trained by lots of other fast food chains that there's not a lot of career advancement. There's not a lot of development. And it doesn't really matter if you work at this one or that one or the other one. So um, there's enormous turnover. You work at you know, McDonald's for a few months and then a Burger King opens near your house. So you go and work there and then you get a job at Wendy's and then your cousin gets a job somewhere else and you go there. And there's very little retention because why would you stay? Um, there's no real benefit. Maybe a small handful are promoted, but it feels very remote and, and hard to imagine that you'll ever get there. And so Sweet Green, they make very good salads. They're delicious, but there's a lot of these new salad fast food places, you know, just salad, and there's a ton of them. And so they thought, well, one way we can differentiate if we can just keep our employees longer. And so one thing they wanted to do is have employees understand the value of retention. They wanted to really get at least the employees who were interested in that and capable of that to see that there's a career step upwards. And so um, then they also wanted employees to understand that they do add a unique value. Now, the way you do this at scale, and I was kind of shocked to see how sophisticated this is, is they have a process where each store, each manager, each employee enters information about themselves. It's very carefully protected. This is not, there, there's no privacy or, or you know, personal information disclosure, but it allows a very sophisticated AI algorithm created by great minds at Google who had created similar systems for highly paid Google engineers to understand kind of the motivational trigger buttons for each employee. And then it creates this sort of wonderful engine that sends a little nudge, a little email, a little text message to managers saying, hey, this employee needs a little more encouragement than normal. Go and just tell them something nice. Or walk around your floor and think of an employee who doesn't make a lot of noise, who doesn't get a lot of attention, and just make sure they know that they're valued as well. And it might seem trite or small. What are you doing? You're just sending some emails to managers. It's transformative. It is we, we now have real data, it dramatically increases retention. Um, and, and it does so by really using the advantages of AI. I think sometimes we get scared, AI is gonna just, there's gonna be giant robots that take our jobs and, um, and, and, and destroy our economy. But this is the opposite. It's AI as a tool for humanism and humanity. Um, and so I tell the story of a young woman named Venus Paul, who was one of these, you know, she would go here, she would go there. She never cared where she worked, really. Um, and then just a few of these nudges where the manager of her local shop was kind of, who 
told me she tended to kind of forget to talk to her employees and would forget particularly people like Venus who was shy and isn't going to scream out for attention. These nudges got her manager to really talk to Venus a little bit more to find out about her career plans and then to get Venus to understand the path upwards that she might have at Sweet Green, that she could become a manager of a of a part of the kitchen, then she could become a manager of a kitchen, then a manager of the store. And then, you know, these are things Sweetgreen has to commit to, but they do. The Those store managers then become regional managers. And you really can actually see people who started as minimum wage line employees who now make six-figure salaries as yeah. regional managers. Right. Right. Now, obviously not everyone's gonna make it that whole way, probably a lot won't, but the very fact that you might will keep people longer and then there's this whole side benefit, which is both sort of obvious and somehow surprising. People are just happier. And they've found that customers really do respond to the happiness of fast food workers. I think intuitively, we kind of get that, that there are places you can go that are just a bummer. And you kind of just feel that the employees are miserable. Somehow the food looks sad. The feeling is sad. And you know what it's like going to a place where people seem to feel valued. That's exciting. And so it, it's, it is a model of how this passion thing is, is really reachable to every type of employee. Adam, the book is a masterpiece. This is one of those books that leaders want to create a book club around and digest it and, and figure out how to take uh, the small bridge over to their own business, regardless of the size or scale. Uh, delighted you joined us today. Appreciate your time. What's next for you? What are your next interests um, going to result in for us to read or listen to? So I actually applied the lessons of the book and created a podcast company with my partner, um, business partner, Laura Mayer. Um, it's a joint venture with Sony Music, although we're doing more newsy and business podcasts, not so much um, music podcasts. And I am learning that it's one thing to write a book about leadership and passion. It's a whole other thing to actually lead a team and trying to apply these goals. And I, I like to think we're off to a good start, but I am. it is very humbling, as I'm sure you and all your uh, listeners and viewers know, it's very humbling to have a bunch of ideas about being a leader and then actually becoming a leader. Um, but I am really enjoying the journey and, and, uh, and, and I'm learning to feel such pride when I enable people to live their passion and not just focus on my own passions. That's becoming my passion, is that enabling. Oh, I think you exhibit the rare blend of a researcher, journalist, scientist, that also is living the principles and struggling as well too. Adam, thanks for your time today. The book is The Passion Economy, The New Rules for Thriving in the 21st Century. Highly recommend it. And I'll be walking this copy up to our president in just a few moments. Adam, thank you again for your time. Appreciate it today. Thank you so much. What a joy. Hey, we took a little longer than normal, but, but I, I, I wanted Adam to have a chance to talk about some of the insights in the book. I'm telling you people, buy the book, listen to it on audio, read the book. The chapter on Megan and the wine business and the transformation will have you asking yourself whether you're a business owner, an entrepreneur, or you're a leader inside of any size company, you will stop and ask yourself a dozen questions on how passionate are your customers, how viable is your market, should you scale or not, and are you asking the right questions around your pricing, and are you firing customers that you should that are bogging you down? It's an extraordinary business read. It has me kind of stopped in my tracks on a whole variety of things that I'm responsible for, 
inside the Franklin Covey Company. I'm passionate about Adam's book, The Passion Economy. If you're not subscribing to Franklin Covey's podcast on leadership, do so by visiting franklincovey.com. Click on the On Leadership tab. You can also consume our podcast on all your favorite podcast channels, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, rate it, rank it, review it. Invite all your friends to subscribe as well. Comes out every Tuesday in an email. We'd love to have you uh, join our group at On Leadership. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here next week.